Greetings programs. Welcome to the latest episode of the Awesome Friday Movie Podcast. My name is Matthew and I'm here with, as always, Simon. Say hello, Simon. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I, is, that, like, is that ever not going to make you laugh, is my question. No, I'm just like, I, I remembered I blew my Shakespearean English opener last week, and it would be way more appropriate this week, and uh, I didn't have a backup ready. So just hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this week's Awesome Friday podcast. I Indeed. hope you're well and have watched good stuff, because we've watched good stuff this week, haven't we? We have. Uh, this week we're talking about two different things, uh, a film and a TV series, both now available generally. Uh, one is a classic, uh, timeless tale of a power-hungry man who tries to take control of his life with a trail of unthinkable violence. And the other one is Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Peacemaker is the, main, it's, it's the other one, just in case we're not clear. It's James Gunn's HBO Max, or in Canada, Crave streaming series, yeah, the Peacemaker, which is a follow-on from the Suicide Squad, which I liked and you didn't, or didn't, um, or thought it was fine. We've talked about Suicide Squad a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but you hit the nail completely on the head because we were comparing it to Birds of Prey, and I, I really, I didn't like Birds of Prey that much when it came out, and now I keep rewatching it and love it. And you pointed out that Birds of Prey is kind of made for adults, but Peacemaker, uh, sorry, uh, the Suicide Squad is made for 14 year old boys and i don't mean that it, like sometimes i like to watch movies that are low swings but i i thought uh the suicide squad was incredibly superficial and kind of uh annoyingly uh flippant about everything hmm. and yeah, that's fair i thought it was fine it's adequate to the task when we talk about Peacemaker, this will become my opinion on the Suicide Squad will become a lot more relevant because I was yeah. expecting more of that, and boy, is it not! <laughs> yeah, but let's save that for because I think we're going to talk about Macbeth first. Um, yes, and the uh, Scottish play. Uh, before we dive too deep in, um, let's just clarify our credentials a little bit. You are a trained actor and drama instructor with a history of uh, directing and performing Shakespeare. Is that correct? Well, I mean, I don't want to blow my own trumpet. Um, yes, well, this is going to be relevant in a second when I point out that I have read them one time. So. <laughs> <laughs> it makes us equally qualified. Yeah. That's the beauty uh, I mean, about Shakespeare, though. The beauty of Shakespeare isn't how much you as long as you've read it and understand it like the the amount of training you've had with it to put it on or direct it, it takes you down a certain path but if you've just read it and then watched someone's vision of it shakespeare plays have this thing where you may know every single word to every single play and you still don't know what you're going to get when you mm -hmm. see a performance of it because it is so incredibly open to interpretation I mean, yeah, that's how you get, you know, the 70s Roman Polanski, Romeo and Juliet, and the 90s Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet, both of which are, I mean, one of them is directed by a creep, but they're both, <laughs> they're both good Shakespeare adaptations. Yeah. You know, uh, and obviously, you know, I haven't, I've, I've only read them once, but like, obviously, there's been a million Shakespeare adaptations on film, and so. And they're all interesting in their own ways. There's only one way you can screw up Shakespeare. Really, there's only one way. And that's if you deliver it as if you are the queen. If you say every line as if you are a royal handmaiden. 
Is right. this a program I see before me? This is incredibly common. <laughs> like, like with a very like received and high pitched like Absolutely. By the breaking of my thumbs, something wicked <laughs> this way comes. When shall we three meet again? Um, you just you just ventured into Shatner territory there. <laughs> but that's the problem. Like it's incredibly common to see this in British theatre, and I, I haven't seen any Shakespeare done in Canada at all. But oh no, that's not true. I see Bard on the Beach, and Bard on the Beach for the most part get it right. But Shakespeare wrote his lines for conversational working class people, not okay. for hoity-toity uh, advanced RP delivery. It sounds completely wrong because the music of it is wrong. Um, don't get me... Th- okay, let's not get into... <laughs> let's not get into drama teacher uh, uh, examination of Shakespeare. No, no, but there's something to be said about the fact that, like, you know, the the accent and vocabulary drift of the United Kingdom, of England in particular, is such that, you know, the way that someone like Denzel Washington speaks is closer to what they were speaking, the way they were speaking you know, in and around when Shakespeare was alive, then current uh, accented Englishes are now. Uh, and um, and I also just, you know, I've seen, I have actually seen a lot of Shakespeare movies and I find the ones where there's a mix of accents and where the accents are not put on and everyone, I find those ones a lot more compelling, very generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, and as a lead into what we're about to talk about, I think that maybe Denzel Washington was born to do Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, who saw that coming? I mean, every, everyone, probably. Oh, He's no, one of the I, greatest. Being... <laughs> I <laughs> mean, I actually wasn't being facetious for a change, because I am not, as you know, I am not the biggest Denzel fan. Hmm. I think he's a little one note. Now, the thing about Denzel is that he is a bit, in my mind, he's one note, but that one note is really, really good. Like, he's yeah. really, really good at that thing. But maybe, I've seen a lot of Denzel movies, so I don't want to say maybe I haven't seen enough, but I've never seen him act like he does in this version of Macbeth. He, I, I've seen him do his chin tucked down, talking under, like, gravitas, hundreds and thousands of times and i've i've never been uh i would i've always wanted to see like different things from him and uh he blew me away in Macbeth. he's he's incredible and you're absolutely right his delivery of the lines and his understanding of the lines and his intensity of what's going on is perfect he totally gets it and i'm sure which uh, sorry which cohen was this was this joel or ethan uh, interestingly, uh, this is Joel Cohen um, right. directing a minimalist adaptation of a Shakespeare play for film. And Ethan, it's the first time they haven't worked together. And the reason they're not working together is that Ethan is taking time off filmmaking to focus on theater. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, really? Yeah, really, really. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, clearly, uh, Joel has a vision and and the beautiful thing about Shakespeare again is that when someone gets it and has a vision for it and in this case it was like this German kind of industrial black and white cinema approach which is very very theatrical it's roots it has its roots in theater so it his vision of Macbeth with the actors he got with he with the liberties he took a lot of liberties with 
some parts of the play as well. And I'd say 99% of them for me played off. So when you've got a vision like that, that is so strong with these actors, um, it's just an instant classic. It's a, a very, very, very good version of this. Probably my favorite Shakespeare play, actually. Well, just for the you know the few listeners who maybe don't know what happened, so can you um why don't you give us a quick rundown on the basic plot of Macbeth? Okay, well I'm going which is, which is a, a tragedy in five acts, right? The basic, basic, basic thing about Macbeth is that you've got it's it's a bit of a common thing with Shakespeare, but you've got a guy who quite wants to have a, a few promotions in his life, and and in this case, it's royal or or like. Uh, military promotions through this military hierarchy that's kind of royal as well. Yeah, he he's, wants, the, he wants, he's the thane of uh, Gloms? No. Uh, yeah, um, at the beginning, um, he's not, he's, uh, he becomes Gloms and he becomes Cordor, because Cordor dies and he becomes Gloms. But right. he's he's like the, a lord of, of something. And um, yeah, the, uh, Thane is a, actually, I know this because I'm a huge dork, but a thane is a historical title roughly equivalent to that of an earl in England. Oh, there we are, perfect. And uh, that explains it to, I'm sure, nobody, because nobody knows what a girl is. But they're in Scotland, of course. So you've got to factor in the Scotland-England rivalry, and um, Macbeth is loyal to to his king. But um, the king uh, promotes his son um, ahead of him, and he's been working a long, long time to kind of get that promotion. And... um, the interesting thing, and Denzel plays this perfectly, is Macbeth is not that effective at kind of taking action. It, very similar to Hamlet in in a few different ways, but he's he's not that. He gets really angry, but doesn't really do anything about it. So the the secret um, energy of Macbeth comes from his wife, his lady Macbeth, so brilliantly played by Francis McDormand, who is the the voice in his ear who persuades him. Now is the time. If you wanna, if you wanna get what you want, you're gonna have to start getting blood on your hands. And she leads him down this path of murder, through through first enemies and then friends. And this guilt actually consumes Macbeth. And the second half, if you like, the the last two acts of Macbeth are all about the guilt of what he's done. He's unable to wash the blood off his hands. There's a, a mythical element with these like witches, these future seers that he keeps bumping into, and he cannot, he cannot detach his visions from reality, and basically he goes absolutely uh, crazy at the end, uh, as does um, his wife. Yeah, and I mean the guilt, the guilt consumes both of them, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's really a a, a tragedy about ambition and guilt and. Um, and it's brilliant because it it um, it has a really good solid cast, but it, it's a horror. It's the closest you're going to get to a, a a horror of the time. Um, it's incredibly shocking. The things he does uh, should shock you, um, and so through his actions, he sort of creates tensions with the the uh, ruling classes of England, and then it, it leads to this war that is not just external but internal as well he's like he's got it in his head it's under his skin and it's if it's done right it's this fantastic examination of mental anguish under guilt under murder under persuasion under power it's brilliant it's fantastic Mm -hmm. 
it, it, it's it's a what am I trying to say? It's a it's a play that I don't necessarily feel needs an all star cast, but when you have one, it's just I think it brings out the best in many performers. Uh, I think that you're right that Denzel was sort of mind blowingly good, and I'm a big fan of Denzel. I like his delivery. I like his cadence. And upon watching this, it feels like everything he's done has been to get to the place where he has that cadence and way of speaking that is so, I mean, I can't imitate it, but the people who can imitate it can imitate it, right? Like he's got a very distinct mode of speech. And it turns out that it's perfect for this play. (laughs) And it's perfect for Shakespearean dialogue. And then you have Frances McDormand, who's just generally amazing. You know, uh, you know, the, she's, I think she's, She's the winningest actor in Oscars history at this point. Uh, so she's, I think she's tied for competitive wins for acting, but she has one more for producing. She has four. Wow. Yeah. Um, maybe I'd another. Have to look that up. I, I think, maybe another from this. Is this going to qualify for Oscars, or is it? Did it, it uh, I believe that it will. It's out on Apple TV Plus now but it played um it played in oscar qualifying festivals in like september october november december of 2021 yeah. um i'm gonna look this up because i remember i think katherine hepburn might have four oscars as well Ooh, okay. um but what i was gonna say is that like pretty much literally everyone else who's in this is is also like the cast is uniformly good um I stand by my years ago prediction that Corey Hawkins, who plays Macduff in this, is going to be, um, you know, one of the biggest stars on the planet at some point. What have you um, seen him before? He's in, uh, I mean, Kong Skull Island. He's in Straight Outta Compton. Um, he's in In the Heights. Uh, he's done a bunch of TV as well. Like he's he's yeah. become quite accomplished. Right. I think that Harry Melling turns out to maybe have been like the dark horse great actor of Harry the Harry Potter franchise outside of the mains. You know, like um He was in Harry Potter. Uh, so um Harry Melling, who plays Malcolm, the king's son in Macbeth, yeah. was uh the cousin no. D- Dudley in the no Harry Potter films. Why? I've just Googled him. He was Dudley? Yeah. Oh. And and you know, recently he's oh. been um he was the bad guy in the old guard and he was in uh, a previous Coen Brothers effort, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Um, oh, and he's been churning out... Uh, he was in um, The Queen's Gambit as well. He was excellent in The Queen's Gambit as one of the oh. love interests slash mildly antagonistic people. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, I mean, Brendan Gleeson is... You know, I, I really like Brendan Gleeson, but he is also, you know, top form as uh, King Duncan in this. The big yeah. surprise for me is an actor who I haven't really seen in too much stuff, but his name is Alex uh, Hassel, Hassel, Hassel? Oh. who plays Ross. Yeah. And he is really good in the part. And the last thing, and the only thing I can remember seeing him in was Cowboy Bebop, where he was so dialed up and over the top as the villain as to be one of the things that made that series not work. <laughs> so... Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was nice to see him, you know, being good. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. Um. So I mean, yeah. I mean, what, what can you say about Macbeth, man? Like, it's 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 so good. <laughs> it's, and everyone, and again, it, I think it brings out the best in 
basically everyone. And I think that, you know, Joel Cohen has worked with enough people that you have actors like Steven Root in a, in a one-off, like a one scene performance. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's amazing. Well, it's reputation as a showcase for, for actors is deserved. And I think that's why we, we see a new version every couple of years. I haven't seen the version with Fassbender but I really want to because I'd be really curious to see what he brings to it because it is a it is one of the classic uh, pieces of performance that an actor can really show an incredible versatility and it. it tends to be something that people come to after they've done a lot of other things so a bit more established because it it, it calls on all this experience you've had there's so much he goes through and there's so much he has to show and he has and the actor has to show that he's not necessarily a villain he's just been manipulated by a villain and um the well he, i mean he's he's a tyrant on his own by the end <laughs> he, by the end sure but he can't deal with that like a villain would would celebrate his his tyrannical nature like mabeth can never gets to the point where he can accept that he has done the things he's done mm-hmm. and and on the on the flip side as well, I always think actually Lady Macbeth is a very difficult bit of casting because she can't be like an Iago. Like she can't be obviously twisting the words and twisting everything. It's gotta be so delicate but so like like a knife but mm. uh, like but, a scalpel, uh, not a broadsword for sure. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And so much of this is the the director understanding the text and understanding how to deliver it. And also, Shakespeare is not designed for film. It's designed for a live space in front of people. So it's a very different energy, and it's really hard to capture that. And that's why I think his approach with that very German style of black and white with a harsh lighting, uh, with the greys and the, and the, the grayscale on the monochrome, was so effective. And the forced angles of the the witches and the the very slight visual effects that were used really fantastic. Yeah, I mean, this is a perfect segue into what I think might be my favorite thing about the movie is that it seems to me to be a pretty perfect blend of the sensibilities of a stage performance, but with the cinematic uh, intentions of a film. Yeah. Um, the you know the sets are, um, I would argue the sets are actually super impressive in their detail, but also minimalistic to allow the actors to shine. You know, to allow the performances to shine, the um, camera is often static, and the scenes um, either uncut or cleverly cut to again allow the performances to shine. Um, but when when appropriate, when whenever there's a, a moment where they could be doing something a little more cinematic, and I think a good example of that is when the witches make their their potion to that Macbeth then gets to ask questions of um, and they stage it instead of being a cauldron, it's, it's a whole room uh, yeah. and they're in the, in the rafters. And I, it's just, the whole thing is just so, I don't even want to tell anyone about it because I just want them to watch it for themselves. You know, um, What's I great? do, I, I do wonder why my one like little niggling complaint is that I do sort of wonder why he went with the smaller aspect ratio and when it could mm-hmm. have been, screen but that's so like that's so nitpicky on my part i don't i wonder if he wanted that kind of patho feel that very old kind of almost flicking projector feel of a square i mean um, maybe 
maybe i mean or maybe he just wanted a more it's one thing i think about a lot is um i think that a lot of creative people work best when they have some manner of constraint they need to work around so perhaps restricting the frame forced him to make some choices i don't know you know like that's um there's lots of things that it could be i just i, I would like to know the answer. i'm just not be complaining i just want to know the answer so, <laughs> yeah, yeah can, you not, can you not get an interview set up with joel cohen can't you get that sort of that i'll work on it about that I'll, work, I'll get him on the podcast it'd be great what was really nice for me is that it wasn't uh there were lots of decisions like cohen took a lot of creative license with how he staged this and one of the the ones that really caught me off guard at the beginning because i've directed the the witch's speech many many times and to have one actress doing all three parts at the beginning, I was like, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't get this. Like, this isn't right. Um, because there, there is so much importance to there being three of them crossing over, not just the dialogue, but the, the, the implications of them being the hands of fate, this very Greek idea of the three of them controlling fate. Mm-hmm. And so I, at the beginning, I was like, "This is this this isn't going to be a version that I'm going to enjoy if this is already something that I don't agree with." And then, I okay, it's a tiny little spoiler. It's in the first scene. It's the beginning of the play, but their tri, is their triality. I know the duality. The three of them, the nature of their three, is revealed as a reflection in a puddle, and mm-hmm. all the lights. And, the, and all the lines get split and I'm watching in surround sound and all the words start moving outwards. I was like, Oh, okay. You, you did that. You did that for me. Didn't you? Like, yeah. <laughs> you to tell me that, you know, what's going on. And I felt that with every decision that he made, save one, there's one moment that really bugs me, but every decision he made, he got the subtext of the play, like the important messages and the, the the all the the things that are going on underneath the language all of his decisions supported that like i really loved the um as you pointed out the something wicked this way comes scene with the the witches like crows in the rafters and the the um boiling of the potion and the the calling of the of of the like the otherworldly elements it was just spectacular and the end was really interestingly done because it should be uncertain like that that i won't say how it was ended but but there's one line he cut and it really bothers <laughs> and i thought i'd actually missed it because you thought he he dropped a line that you liked but you went back and you heard it so i actually re-watched it to listen for this line and it's not there and it's really, <laughs> and it's I mean, right at the it's right at the beginning of the play when the witches like begin and they say, where shall we three meet again? In, in thunder, sunshine, or in rain? I'm probably getting this wrong. And hang on, I'm, I'm bringing this up. Because I want to get the exact words. Mm-hmm. You would have thought I'd remember this by now. So they say, when shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done? When the battle's lost and won? And then the third witch that says, that will be ere the said of sun. And then they go, where the place upon the heath, there to meet with Macbeth. So that beginning of that play has so much musicality and rhythm because I've done it so many times. He just cut the line, that will be in the set of sun. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it, do you know what it felt like to me? It's like when you play a vinyl and it skips. 
<laughs> it's just <laughs> one forward. I'm like, but why, why, why would you cut that? Because I didn't. Obviously, he cut some things out to make it uh, to keep it under two hours. Because this is a long play. Uh, why that one line? It takes away so much rhythm. But if that's the only thing that bothered me out of all the cuts he did, out of all the decisions he made from someone who's really picky about Shakespeare and Macbeth in particular, then I would call that a great success. I just, I would love to just speak to him and say, why did you cut? That will be in the set of sun. <laughs> why did you do it? Uh-huh. So if you get that interview set up, that'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, the line that I, didn't hear the first time through is actually a super important one that would make the end not make sense if it wasn't spoken. Yeah. And I, I went back because I was I I got distracted when a cat jumped from uh, the back <laughs> of our sofa onto my face. Um, so I basically had to go back to here. I just you know, and I was like I was, I was like I didn't hear the line. It's got to be there, right? Like, and my wife was like, I I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Um, because you know she's not a Shakespeare. She's a very intelligent person, but she's not a Shakespeare scholar. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I at the end of the movie, I'm like, okay, I just have to make sure it's there because that would be, and it's like the one line that I actually, it's it's not even I don't remember the line. I just remember that it's like the one part of the play that makes the ending make sense, and I remember it. Yeah. So I had to go back and look. Honestly, um, when you said you thought they'd missed it out, I was I was shocked too, but I was glad to hear it. Yeah, and I, you know, it's. It, I'm not gonna. For those of you who've never seen Macbeth, I'm not gonna say what it is. Um, but if someone mm-hmm. wants to DM me on Twitter or something, I'll say which one it is. Um, I talk, sorry, sorry. I want to talk about uh, Lady Macduff. So an yeah. actress called Moses Ingram. Yep. Who apparently was also in the Queen's Gambit. I haven't seen her in anything before. And, yeah, uh, she's really good in the I, Queen's Gambit, actually. She's, She's only got this one scene. Um, it's a very important scene, but she's only got this one scene in um, in this, and she was I mean, exceptional. I, I mean, really... before, uh, before we go there, we should probably just admit and just acknowledge the fact that uh, Catherine Hunter, as the Three Witches, is also fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, what Catherine, to say? She and she like she's not a huge screen presence but she is like a long-standing and well-regarded uh like instructor and uh mentor at i think both the royal shakespeare society or whatever it's called uh and the royal academy of dramatic arts i believe um and most of her like imdb credits are like are live shakespeare performances that have been filmed uh and she's she's very spectacular yeah she's incredibly flexible as well and they really put that to um it almost could be CGI what she does with her body, but it's not. It's her twisting herself into all kinds of things, shapes, to get that that weird mystical quality of the sisters across. Yeah, you will be excited to know that she has been cast in Obi Wan Kenobi. Moses Ingram has. Yeah. Yes. I'm very excited to, to learn that. I'm almost as excited as I was when I found out Mary Elizabeth Winstead is in Ahsoka. Yep. Yeah, we should maybe do a Star Wars retrospective episode so we can talk about the stuff that's good and the stuff that is bad, like Boba Fett. Ooh, are we uh, going with bad for Boba Fett? Did you want this is this is a it's a conversation for another time. It's a conversation <laughs> for another time. Okay, I would happily do a Star Wars retrospective. You? 
Really? <laughs> I don't as I turn you to face my Rogue One standee that I took from your store. <laughs> my wife, when we moved from our apartment, she's like, so we can throw this giant Rogue One standee out now. I'm like, no, no, we can't. Yeah. So we actually had to package it and have the delivery people bring it carefully. Uh, uh, that's amazing. Um, so yes, that's, that's all very much like Macbeth, which is great. <laughs> When when do we get to see star like sci-fi Macbeth? I'm sure there's a version like there's bound to be a Star Wars Macbeth somewhere, right? I mean, yes. I mean, there's about a bazillion different adaptations of Macbeth. Uh, uh, I mean, one of the most famous was probably the Akira Kurosawa film, uh, Throne of Blood. Uh, oh is, no, uh, I've never seen that. And I hear good things. Uh, yeah, it's because it's a great film. Uh, let's just Google very quickly uh, adaptations of Macbeth. The Wikipedia Macbeth? entry on Macbeth <laughs> is extensive. This sounds like my favorite beginning of... You haven't seen this episode of McGruby yet, but he, um, he, he writes a speech for someone, and the speech begins with, the Merriam Dictionary definition, <laughs> like the worst beginning of any uh, speech you can make. We'll talk about MacGruber another time as well, because it's fantastic. Yeah, I'm jealous of our American friends who got all of MacGruber on the same day on Peacock in the States, mm. and we're getting it week by week uh, on Showcase here in Canada. And I would very much like to see all of it, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, I don't. I don't pirate stuff, so I can't. Uh, adaptations. Throne of Blood, Men of Respect, Scotland PA, Stage Fury still. Yeah, there's no Star Wars version. Um, Star Wars mostly rips off westerns and, and yeah. uh, samurai films, though, so that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I would love this to be some kind of um, Joel Cohen personal uh uh, mission to do more Shakespeare. Like I want to see him do Hamlet next, but I I love what he did with the Greek stuff with uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. So it doesn't have to be another German black and white expressionist did like cinema. It can be blue bluegrass. I mean, why not? I mean, I, as long as he keeps making movies, then I'm fine with it. What? Is this really the first movie he's made without his brother? It is, yeah. Did he not do Intolerable Cruelty by himself, or am I imagining that? Nope. No. That's the thing about the Coen Brothers. You might be... I mean, there was the the thing where... And I don't remember what the last one was. It might have been Intolerable Cruelty. Is that before the Directors Guild of America rules changed, they had to be credited separately. So... Joel was uh, credited as director and Ethan was credited as producer on every film that they made up until the mid to uh, mid late two thousands um, when the rules changed. And then they started being uh, credited as the Cohen brothers or Joel and Ethan right. Cohen, but they, they, their process did not change just the way they were credited. did. They co-directed and co-produced everything they did to that point. What I find really interesting about Coen Brothers movies is that there's some of them I genuinely don't like, but even the ones I don't like, they're all good movies. 
they're all yeah. like distinctive with great stories. I, I, I have a weird situation. Like take um, Burn After Reading, which openly admits at the end with your Spider-Man Jonah Jameson guy freely admitting that it's about nothing. And what yeah. have we done here? <laughs> yeah, what have we learned? Fuck Divino. It's literally about nothing. But it worked for Seinfeld. So, but it's it's still a really uh, um, distinct way of telling a story, and all of their movies are completely distinct ways of telling a story. And uh, you love, um, uh, God, what's the one with young Han Solo in it? Oh, and Hail love, Caesar! Hail Caesar's amazing. I didn't get on with Hell Caesar, but I still really appreciated it as a very distinct kind of movie. So, I should try that. As a person who knows my own taste and has some inkling as to yours, and based <laughs> on um, other films I know that I've said that I like, that you were like, I didn't really like that. And then when you watch them again years later, you're <laughs> like, actually, I like this movie. I'm going to say you should watch Hail Caesar again um, uh, and try and meet it more on its own terms. Because Hail Caesar is a movie that I feel was really let down is probably too strong of a way to put it, but it was, um, it was sold in uh, what it was, was sold incorrectly. Like it was sold as one thing, but it's actually another. And I feel that that threw a lot of people for a loop. What do you mean? What was it sold as? It was sold as this like wacky fifties adventure starring George Clooney. And, and it's, what was it? and it's actually like, it's, it's a, a story of the head of a movie studio and every other scene is a scene from a different type of fifties movie. And it's much more of not quite an anthology, but like George Clooney is not even the main character. <laughs> He's uh, Josh Brolin is. And um, uh, Tilda Swinton plays twin gossip journalists who are competing with one another. And every time the main character again, played by Josh Brolin, like goes onto a soundstage, you get a scene from, some 50s style movie so there's a song and dance number with uh, Channing Tatum called No Dames which is hilarious and <laughs> there's a very serious drama with uh, Alden Ehrenreich uh, being directed by Ray Fiennes which is maybe the funniest scene of the 2010s um, <laughs> there's a water opera starring Scarlett Johansson um, you know, there's there's one of everything, and this the film that George Clooney is shooting is like a swords and sandals epic where he is a, a Roman general who's you know converted to Christianity by Jesus Christ, um, and his right hand man is Clancy Brown, and it's it's just oh, yeah. so good, it's so good. Yeah, I should retry that. I love Clancy Brown. I should give it another go, definitely. Yeah, and just every time, and like George Clooney plays a very you know that like image of an actor from the fifties who uh, being kind of like shallow and vapid and stupid. Like George Clooney plays that incredibly well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a visual gag that it might be my favorite favorite visual gag of the entire 2010s as well. It's oh, uh, someone asked me on Twitter. There was a thing going around Twitter like, "What are your top, th- um, what are your top three Coen brothers?" And uh, the whole point of it was that like you could choose any three, and that's totally valid. But yeah, I put Hail Caesars would be my number two or three at this point. So where's Macbeth in there, or does that not count as a Coen Brothers? Um, if we're gonna count it, it would be in the top ten somewhere. But right. the thing I would acknowledge is that my ranking of the Coen Brothers films would could probably change day to day yeah. and still be valid. 
Well, O Brother would be number one, right? In anyone's two, list. My number two. What's your number one? The Big Lebowski. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also, like, if Hail Caesar's my number three, then where does that leave Fargo and No Country for Old Men? I haven't I, seen No Country for Old Men. Ah, yeah. So you're allowed to be wrong sometimes. <laughs> uh... No, I, I, I can't be wrong. I literally haven't seen it. But I don't like Fargo. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, you are. Yep. Yep. You are. <laughs> Maybe it was the accent that threw me off. I was uh I was thinking about this today because there's a film that I remember liking when I was young that they did called The Hudsucker Proxy, which mm-hmm. um I remember really liking, but I haven't seen it since like the late '90s. So I should probably mm-hmm. look that one up again. And Barton Fink as well. I haven't seen that. We should maybe That's do a, a, Cole, a Cohen's retrospective. Yeah, maybe we should do a, a special episode where we watch and rank the Cohen Brothers stuff. Planning. Um, anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, on that, so Macbeth is another entry, and I think it's in their filmography, whether you want to count it as a, a Brothers movie or not, and it is an excellent one. And yeah. I really hope I hope they get back. They work together again. But if if Joel's going to keep making movies of this caliber on his own, then that's also fine. And if you miss going to the theater, uh, then this is kind of it. Feels like going to the theater in the same way that Tick Tick Boom was a really good example of when a director knows how to make a musical theater work on screen. Because mm-hmm. Lin Manuel Miranda completely nailed that. Interestingly. Much better that I've, I've been trying to watch it in the Heights and I'm not doing very well because it doesn't get what makes musical theater. I don't think John Cho is, I think he's making a film that's a film instead of a film that's a musical theater. Anyway, that's um, and a whole Macbeth, other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Macbeth is the same deal as Tick Tick Boom in that the director gets how to get the energy of a piece of theater on film and uh, it, it feels like going to the theater. It's fantastic. Yeah. That is accurate. Okay. Yes. So okay. Well, so two thumbs up. Five of all the stars. Oh, five stars. Wow. So even five, I will give it a four. I'll say it's a four. I think I, I think I gave it a four on the site, but it doesn't matter. Like who, who cares? Watch it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty thin distinction of whether it's you know fantastic or amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so let's shall we, move on. Shall we move on to yeah. Peacemaker? What, uh, what's this about then? You do the synopsis on this one. So Peacemaker follows John Cena's character from The Suicide Squad, who is a long-standing DC Comics uh, anti-hero, um, who very famously in all of the marketing for The Suicide Squad has a, a great line where he says that he loves peace. And he loves peace so much he doesn't care how many men, women, and children he has to kill to get it. Um, um, spoiler alert for the Suicide Squad at the end of the movie he is uh, he is crushed by a building uh, but in a post credit scene is revealed to have survived and this story takes place a few years later and he's recovered and he's recruited by a sort of subgroup of Amanda Waller's Amanda Waller being the like leader, the director of the Suicide Squad uh, he's recruited by a small task force to combat um, a threat, a threat that goes undefined for the first basically three episodes, um, uh, and along for the ride. So he's there, and along for the ride is his uh, his sort of supervillain best friend, but not best friend, vigilante, uh, which is the Adrian Chase version of vigilante from the comics. Uh, along with um, 
uh, uh, what's her name? Jen Holland's character from uh, the Suicide Squad, whose name is Harcourt, and she's the sort of badass chick on the team. And there's a team leader, and there's a tech guy who's play also in the Suicide Squad. And then there's a new a new member to the team who who is revealed very early on is Amanda Waller's daughter. Um, and hilarity and action ensue. Basically, I don't want to give away too much. This is airing on again HBO Max in the states and Crave uh, in Canada. And the fourth episode dropped this week, and it might be my favorite one of them so far. And I've liked it the whole way through. What What do you think? I'm sorry. Is the new recruit established as Amanda Waller's daughter? How did I completely miss that? Uh, I don't know. There was a video call between them. Uh, I, yeah, at the very beginning. I have to rewatch it. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 how much I pay attention. Um, uh, sorry, what was your question? Do I like it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Maybe because I, I we started watching Peacemaker. I actually didn't know it was coming. I put on Crave uh, lunchtime over work to try and put anything on, and saw it was there. I was like, well, I've got. I need to do something quickly because I've got like twenty five minutes to watch something, and. Um, We'd just been talking about suicide, the Suicide Squad, and how I don't feel like rewatching it because there's nothing really there to rewatch, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I put it on, and I was expecting it to be crap. To be honest, I was expecting it to be really banal and um, um, immature, and all these things. And it is so, immature, to be fair. <laughs> it, is, it is really immature. Look, the what James Gunn gets really, really right when he gets it right is that balance between pathos and uh, immaturity, like mm. the uh, which I don't think he got in the Suicide Squad. I, I mean, he wasn't really going for it in the Suicide Squad, but first Guardians had it. You love the second Guardians for 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 the deep stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true the the uh, the thing about Peacemaker is that he's still immature and stupid and this absolute just like thick headed murderer but instead of it being just the butt of jokes it's now uh, it's a bit like Austin Powers you know when he wakes up and he's stupid and every, all the reactions are you are a complete relic. You don't belong in society anymore. And it's the same thing with Peacemaker. Everyone around him is not entertained or amused by him mm-hmm. or as stupid as him. Maybe the Suicide Squad is just a bunch of people being ridiculous together, so it didn't quite work for me. But here it's him versus like normal people trying to do their job properly. And I find that balance much, much better. And what's really, really interesting is that John Cena is really... Uh, showing some very, very interesting, delicate, subtle acting. Yeah, I thought subtle would be a word to describe John Cena as Peacemaker, but he's he's clearly got s- uh, significant mental issues from a very turbulent life. And when he's among people, he's like full of bravado, and he's the man that gets things done. But when he's by himself, you see things creeping through that he's really battling to keep back and you also see he's got this really interesting moral code where he'll kill anyone for peace but he won't kill someone just because someone else tells him to he has to believe that it's for peace mm-hmm. and and yeah it's still it's all very superficial stuff but it's uh i mean it's brilliantly, it's... Written, brilliantly written 
Yeah, it's it's also. I mean, I think calling it superficial is probably doing it a disservice because it's not. I mean, that's fair. It's not the deepest of subject matter, but it's not. It's, it's not shallow either. You know, like it's a, it's a pretty perfect mid ground of. Um, it's and I guess I guess the reason I don't I don't I wouldn't go so far as to call it deep is that there's nothing in it that's totally surprising and nothing in it that I haven't seen before. And in, in fact, there's a uh, moment uh, at the end of episode four uh, where there's like a reveal and I think I saw it coming from at least the beginning of that episode. And there's a moment of, before where I'm like, oh, so this is what the ending of what this character's last frame of the episode is going to be. But it's one of those shows that's well-written and well-executed enough that even though you're watching stuff you've definitely seen before, you don't care because it's so well done. It is really it's well a, done. Like it's, a, it's a really well-executed version of what it is. Uh, and and John Cena, I mean, it's tr- on the one, it's sort of a, du- a double-edged sword, but in a good way, where in the moments where he needs to be sort of tragic and pathetic, he's amazing. And also in the moments where he needs to be full of bravado, he's clearly having the time of his life. Yeah, it really is. Um, and it's it's so it's so well executed. The balance between those things is so well executed. Yeah, yeah. I did not see the twist coming, but listeners, you should so you should know something, and that you'll go to watch a if you ever go to watch a movie with Matt, the first character will walk on and say one word, and Matt will go, "All oh, right, okay, so he's him, and he's him, and he's going to twist at this point." <laughs> And that person in the background is going to do this and he'll be right about everything. Whereas on the flip side, it's me completely oblivious until the twist drops. And then you'll hear a, what? <laughs> so yeah. I didn't see the twist coming at all. Uh, to be fair, I don't believe that the, the nature of that twist has been fully revealed, but the, 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 the I don't want to get into spoilers. We'll talk after. Yeah, no, but, there's, there's no need to. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I could take a side note, a sidebar, and just ruin every mystery movie for you. Are you ready for that? Please don't. Yeah, so when you're watching a mystery film, um, and there's a protagonist played by a famous actor, and there's a number of supporting characters played by, you know, B, C, B, and A level actors, and you're trying to figure out who the bad guy is and who the red herrings are. The way to figure out who the bad guy is very early on is to recognize who the most famous person is who has the least to do with the plot in the first two acts. That's the bad guy. 97% of the time. <laughs> How very Scooby-Doo of you. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, uh, watch out for that. Yeah. Um, I really like how Peacemaker's written as an ensemble with really strong, diverse characters and like he's he's uh, who's who's the actress that's his girlfriend that I didn't know was his girlfriend Jennifer Holland. Jennifer oh, Jen Holland, Holland, yeah, she's she's been uh, James Gunn's partner since uh, twenty fifteen or so. I think it's right around the same time as the first Guardians. Right, she's great in this. Like she's found a balance between she's this kick-ass uh, uh, like agent who will break your arm if you even talk to her in a bar, but she has got some delicate moments as well. But in the last episode, the person I was most impressed with is a guy called Freddie Stromer, who plays a best friend, Vigilante. Yeah, he was really good. And he's got, um, he's just been on the periphery until the last episode where he has 
a moment that I'm not going to spoil, but a uh, in in typical like James Gunn is a very good writer of dialogue, and he's a very good writer of dialogue that you, that you will remember, and it, it, almost Tarantino esque in that way, and he's very good at giving people moments, and Freddie Stromer has a brilliantly written moment, which he delivers brilliantly as an actor, and it's one of those like moments where. Uh, script and actor comes together like perfectly you know the part i'm talking about i'm sure well actually i was gonna ask do you mean the the one of those in episode three or the one of those in episode four because <laughs> he has one uh, in each. I, which one which was what does he have in episode three i don't want to spoil it oh, no i'm talking about um let's let's go around the table and talk about uh um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know the one. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good scene. I'll start. Like that whole section was just glorious because there's not any kind of moment of hesitancy from him at all. Yeah, I, you know, um, it's funny because you know, uh, I feel like James Gunn is now what we all wanted Joss Whedon to continue to be, what we all hoped he was that he turned mm-hmm. out to not be, and that yeah. he seems like a you know a decent guy in a loving relationship who loves to write and loves to tell stories and isn't a prick, you know? And even though internet trolls managed to get him fired from Disney a few years ago, and it turned out that like, yeah, he was a dick in the past and he learned and grew and we all forgave him for it because he's a good person at heart. Uh, You know, I think he's like the new, again, he's, he's what we all hoped Joss Whedon was, you know? Yeah. And, the there's very few director writers who uh who can get an ensemble right and unfortunately Whedon was very very much one of them but James Gunn definitely has that ability too um yeah i think i think the difference with James Gunn is that i think perhaps the overall tone of his output sometimes doesn't work for me like i don't uh, we've talked about the Suicide Squad. I'm, I don't. We don't need to go into detail. Different, different opinions on Guardians of the Galaxy two, uh, but I think when it works, when he finds the right balance and the right tone and the right script and the right sort of characters, it's it's like Whedon at his best. It's that beautiful Buffy moment of everyone being an equal part in the machine and the machine just playing beautifully. Well, I think the key difference is that uh, when Gunn's balance doesn't work, it's because he tips back towards being a little too juvenile. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the difference with Whedon was that when he's when his balance didn't work, he tipped towards being too clever by half, which comes yeah. off as smug. Yeah, uh, which makes sense when you learn what a smug prick he is in real life. <laughs> it is. Um, it's kind of upsetting as well. Just while we finish up talking about Whedon, is that all the actors that he worked with at the time, where it really felt when you watch Buffy, it felt like this was a dream ensemble, a dream cast. Everyone likes each other. Everyone must be the like best friends and going to work. Can you imagine working on Buffy every day? So knowing now that Michelle Trachtenberg was her rule was never be in the room with jo- with Joss alone. And then she was. How old was she in Buffy? Like too, it doesn't matter. Too young. The answer is too young. There's no way she was legal on, on any level. 
And for her to, as a young actress, to have that rule, Charisma Carpenter has many things to say about him and and no one's been complimentary about working with him. And it just kind of uh kind of dulls that that image, that feeling of of Buffy. And and it's also a testament to how well the actors worked to sort of hide all what was going on behind the scenes to make it look like it was this amazing, like happy ensemble. Yeah, I mean, this is something I struggle with um, kind of frequently, actually. Um, we watched the uh, LA Confidential in December, which is a film that I love and I genuinely believe is one of the best films of the 2000s. But Kevin Spacey's in it. And I have a hard time watching Kevin Spacey now. Um, and it's it's not fair because... Uh, filmmaking is an very much a collaborative effort and to have you know one actor i try not to let it be that one actor would let me not watch a thing but it is kind of hard to watch when you know you know <laughs> yeah. and every once in a while i have thought i did think about rewatching buffy or rewatching angel which is a show that i actually i know i'm in the minority but i liked a lot um and I've thought a lot about rewatching Firefly, which is a show that I adored. And when I say adored, I mean pre-social media, there was a thing called meetup groups, and I was in the local Vancouver Firefly meetup group, and we like had Firefly parties, and we got invited to an early test screening of of, of Serenity, and I loved, I loved that show. And between Joss Whedon being revealed to be a dick and Adam Baldwin being revealed to be a right-wing tool. I just can't quite get there to watch it again, which is very yeah. upsetting to me. But, you know, the, the upside uh, well, the, the upside of this is that, you know, the internet brought up James Gunn's past and we were all like, yeah, he was a dick, but he grew and he's not a dick anymore. You know, he apologized. He took ownership for the things you're accusing him of years ago instead of just deflecting them off onto the people around him, which is what Whedon continues to do. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, like I say, this is why I sort of, I, I think it's a, an interesting comparison that I think that Gunn is what we, what we all wanted Whedon to be. Yeah. yeah. I just enjoy your phrasing that he was a dick, but he grew. Are we still doing phrasing? Yeah. I, I hope so. And the nice thing about Gunn as well is that he does a lot of um, behind the scenes stuff and, there's lots of actors who talk very, very favorably about working with him, about the, 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 the freedom to improvise, but the script's there, the work ethic's there. And he does sound like a really supportive, like exciting director for actors. Mm -hmm. like there's no, no one really says anything nasty about him. And um, in, in the current climate, I don't think people would not say anything. Like yeah. if the, what people, and then in contrast, if you go back to Whedon, the cast of Justice League talking about their experience now, like these are established actors like Ben Affleck and even Gal Gadot at that time who had some, even then had enough uh, clout talking about uh, the experience of working with this director and even how they felt threatened in their careers and Affleck said it's the low point of his whole like decade, like and he'll never ever do it again. It's you've got to be you've got to be a certain kind of dick to make established actors feel like that. 
I think. Yeah. You think? Uh, do you think Avengers was a fluke? The first Avengers, because it's pretty much a perfect movie, and everyone's like on the top form in it. And the the for for years it's been heralded as like it's the Whedon magic. I mean, that's why he was brought back for so many other things. And Age of Ultron isn't the same thing. So, do you do you think? Avengers worked because it was planned that way, or it just kind of turned out that way. This is a complicated question. So I think that Whedon, at his height, is a very good writer, and writer anyway of an ensemble. And I think that the Avengers is one of the high points of his career for that. I think it's a. I think that the villain. I think that the resolution of the conflict is a little bit underwritten, but I think it's otherwise basically, I don't want to say perfectly written, but I think it's a very well-written story. Mm-hmm. A very excellent example of exactly what it is. Um, and I think that it has other problems. I think I don't know what, I can't speak to how he was on the set of Avengers, um, but certainly that movie had other factors holding it back. Number one among those being you know, the guy who is then in charge of Marvel Studios, a guy called Ike Perlmutter, who refused to let them have any other female characters because he's a sexist piece of shit, um, who was eventually removed from Marvel Studios and later from Marvel Comics as well in favor of Kevin Feige. Uh, and it's not a it's not a coincidence that the, you know, the first movie that Feige was fully in control of being Thor Ragnarok is a big, bright, omnisexual funny thing very very to use a word that i kind of hate very woke and very you know to 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 dive a little more deeply into themes of things like colonialization and uh colonialism and uh and and anyway so there was other problems as well and i'm not trying to minimize the, the weeding of it all but i think that i think that avengers was made at his height and honestly, I really like Avengers Age of Ultron, and I think that the problems with that are that he made a three-hour movie they forced him to cut down to two. You know, I would very much like to see the longer version of that. Um, there, I, I know for a fact they shot a lot of stuff that would have made a lot of it make more sense, but they basically said, here's your time limit, stick within it. And he had to cut a ton of stuff out. Does any of that excuse him being a piece of shit? No. <laughs> like, not at all. And even the even the Avengers movies that he made, again, both of which I like, one of which I love, I have a hard time coming back to. And again, filmmaking is a collaborative art, and it sucks that my willingness to rewatch the film is colored at all by the fact that the director's a piece of shit. Especially yeah. when, and I'll be the first to admit... Kubrick was a piece of shit too and I let that shit slide all the time a different kind of piece of shit I think um, yeah. so I mean the, the 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 level to which a person is a piece of shit does have an effect and he's there's a, you know there's a reason I won't watch The Professional again and I have a hard I, I have watched um, The Fifth Element again but I have a hard time watching it based on um, the director of those films being mm. A, a, basically a rapist you know like 
say it's tough. The whole thing is tough, and I don't have the answers. And maybe I maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I'm not I'm not the person really to speak about them. We should just let the people who are you know the victims to tell their story, and we should believe them. Um, but it's a uh, the whole thing sucks on every level, every level. So <laughs> that, was, that was a bit that was a bit rambly. Uh, no, no, did, no, didn't really no. answer the question, but uh, well, that's it's because I, I I think it answered the question perfectly well. Like I I agree with you totally. It's it's so difficult. Some of my favorite movies have turned out to be directed by terrible people, and how do you how do you resolve that? And but going back to what you're saying, I think it's a, a very very astute to say that. James Gunn has the potential of being Whedon and more, I think, because he's got the ethic and he's got the ability and he's got the script. And Peacemaker has been a re revelation for me um, because I, I, after the Suicide Squad, I was wondering if, if uh, when Gunn comes back and does Guardians 3, like what state is that going to be in? Is it going to be just more like schlock and boom and crap? But Peacemaker's made me remember that he can do the balance he can do fantastic action brilliant funny script and deep moments as well it makes me really excited for uh, guardians 3 actually mm -hmm. and which the and the guardians of the galaxy holiday special which he's also doing i don't even know what that is what what is that it's a Disney Plus special that is in continuity with Guardians 1 and 2 and 3 that's coming this year on Disney Plus. Is it another like Life Day story? It's bound I mean, to be we, like we don't know. It's a year away. <laughs> there's no way there's no way that's been titled like holiday special and it's not going to riff on the Star Wars holiday special. Oh no, a thousand thousand percent. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm I'm very excited by the idea of it. Yeah. I mean, maybe and, they'll go uh, back to they'll go back to Earth at Christmas for Peter Quill. For you know, that's there. Set, that's a that's a good setup. How do you feel about Chris Pratt? Are you able to watch Chris Pratt without feelings of rage? I don't know. He just, he's just religious. <laughs> he's just religious, right? He's not a rapist or an <laughs> or an or an abuser. You know, he's just religious. It's 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 a different, and also. He's kind of omnipresent, you know. It's hard to mm -hmm. not see him. I don't, um, for whatever reason, and maybe I'm not as well versed in the, his controversies, but I don't have as much problem with Chris Pratt as some of the other people we've talked about so far tonight. Yeah, fair enough. And, so, you know, if anything, if anything, my uh, I have a problem with Chris Pratt, and then I think he's a little he's a little one note. Which I don't think is entirely his own fault, but he's a you know they keep casting him to be that kind of character in the same way that Ryan Reynolds went through a period where they were like you've got a square jaw and a and a good sense of comic timing let's put you in sixteen romantic comedies that are all exactly the same yes. you know and then once he found his Deadpool they're still casting him to be Deadpool every time now but it it works because he's found yeah. his niche you know yeah, yeah, yeah. so. Good. Well, so um, I would say Peacemaker is highly recommended, even if you hate the Suicide Squad and it sounds like your idea of hell. He he is a character to which other people react to, and he turns out 
John Cena knows how to act, and by all accounts knows how to improvise as well. So yeah, uh, recommend well, it. Well, I mean, my biggest complaint about both Macbeth um, and the Suicide uh, Squad and Peacemaker at this point is that they're both on streaming services that not everybody has, and I think they should, they will be well deserved to be seen by wider audiences. To be fair, yeah. they're on very big streaming services, but not everyone in Canada has Crave and not everyone anywhere has Apple TV Plus. So Isn't that the strategy though? Is to make stuff that you make people finally subscribe to your service? It's not about single Eventually someone's gonna come up with a great idea of forming a single company that allows you to pay one body to subscribe to multiple streaming services and we're gonna call it cable. It you does know. amuse me how we've gone through except, the cycle. But... Except it'll be called like it'll be spelled like C A B L. You know? And No, it'll just be C B L. Come on. Vowels are so last year. Yeah. And probably they'll release an NFT or something and it's... <laughs> Oh god. Ah Yeah. Ah. They will. Someone's already planning that, definitely. Yeah. Good. So what have you got coming up for the next week? What's in your life? What are you watching? I Honestly, I don't know what's coming up. I will be covering... Um, uh, I've been invited to cover the Slamdance Film Festival, uh, which is a festival of independent cinema based out of... Actually, this, this basically the same place that Sundance happens. Uh, and it happens... Sundance is on right now, and I was not invited to participate. Um and Slamdance basically starts right after it ends. Uh, so mm. I will hopefully be watching a bunch of interesting independent cinema. Um, and I think, I think we have like a plan for next week. I thought, do we maybe have a plan for next week? Yes. Yes, um, we do. Once I load my notes up, I'll be able to tell you what that plan is. Yeah. Um, I uh, I don't, there's a thing I've seen, I don't know if the embargo has technically dropped, so I can't say if I've seen it, but there's a thing that I've seen that I would like, I know you have access to and I'd like you to watch oh. because I think it's quite fun. Yeah, um, okay. So if you can get that done in time for next week's episode. Yeah, I can do that. How many episodes is that? Eight. It's eight episodes. Are there an, are there an hour each? Uh, they're like, yeah, like 45 to an hour each. Um, but I'd be interested to see you just slam through as many yeah. of them as, as you can um, yeah. and then um, I don't know I don't know I have a, it's a, it's you're, a busy... watching, you're watching Venom 2 at some point which I'm particularly jealous about I'm watching that tonight after I make dinner This is uh, we're recording on Saturday for release on Sunday and my plan is to watch that after dinner I, um, I, want, I want feedback during and after the movie <laughs> uh, well no yes, promises but uh, we'll, we'll see yeah not during don't look at your phone during the movie but I just want one word I want a one word review afterwards well for context you know you liked Venom and I thought it was a entertaining but terrible movie um, I, I did love it so <laughs> my hope is that it's terrible but entertaining but I fully <laughs> expect it to be terrible yeah I, I, I mean Venom was definitely in my sweet spot of movies uh, Tom Hardy knew what he was doing and he gave me what I wanted and I, I'm sure the sequel is more of the same. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> Good. Well, Good. enjoy that. Um, do, you, do you have any final messages for our beautiful listeners? 
I, I mean, as always, uh, would like to take this time to thank everyone for listening. Um, no matter what else you're doing, we do appreciate that the most. Uh, if you would like to support us a little more directly, whatever podcasting platform you listen to this on, if you could give us a subscribe or follow or a five-star review or a five-star review, those things help immeasurably. I don't know if I said five-star review, but that would be amazing. Um, we also have a Patreon, which you can find linked in the show notes and on the website. Um, and yeah, I mean, and thank you. I don't I haven't really do this, but uh, before, but thank you to everyone who is a pa- uh, patron. Um, you guys are pretty much the reason that we're still doing this at this point. Uh, I mean, we love doing this; it's fun. But uh, the, you, you patrons, as they say on Sesame Street, make it possible. Your support makes it possible. So thank you, and thank you for listening. Uh, what am I forgetting? You know, we should probably add a First Nations land acknowledgement acknowledgement at some point we are in canada in vancouver it is the unceded lands of the musqueam uh and squamish nations so there you go what do you i, have I don't feel like i can talk about um uh, i have a british accent like this isn't gonna go well if i'm like <laughs> it's better coming from you i i've got some historical things going on <laughs> Yeah, as long as we're as long as we're acknowledging our past. But anyway, on that bombshell, we should sign off. Thank you for listening. We do have to get back to our real lives, but we will yep. see you in a week. Take care. We love you. Bye. Bye.